Hello, my name is David Kalmus. I'm the Deputy Editor for Neuroradiology. Today we're joined by Jeffrey Petrella, Associate Professor of Radiology at Duke University, to discuss his paper entitled, Predicting Cognitive Decline in Subjects at Risk for Alzheimer's Disease Using Combined CSF, MRI, and PET Biomarkers in the Alzheimer's Disease Neuroimaging Initiative. Uh, Jeff, welcome. Yeah, thank you, Dave. It's nice to be here. So at the beginning, uh, it would be good for our readers for you to summarize briefly uh, the major findings of your study. Sure. So um, we looked at uh, about 100 patients with mild cognitive impairment, so mild memory issues, from the Alzheimer's Disease Neuroimaging Initiative. This is a large multi-center clinical trial, and it basically looked at imaging and other biomarkers in progression in, in terms of um, progression to Alzheimer's disease. And we asked the question, well, what were the best predictors in terms of biomarkers to conversion, uh, for conversion from MCI, mild cognitive impairment, to Alzheimer's disease? So first what we did is we looked at, well, what are the tools that the neurologist or the geriatrician or the psychiatrist has available in their office? You know, when someone comes in with mild memory complaints, you know, what are those tools and what's the accuracy at those tools in predicting conversion to Alzheimer's disease? And we did this study. We looked at conversion over about a four-year four period or within a four-year period. We assessed the accuracy of the office evaluation, which includes cognitive testing, some demographics, and, and a simple blood test, uh, a, um, just a genetic blood test. And then after that, we looked at how much do three biomarkers contribute to accuracy over and above what the clinician has available to them. So the biomarkers we looked at were uh, volumetric MRI, uh, FDG PET, and CSF proteins, so uh, proteins from a spinal tap. And what we found is that if you look at office tests alone in terms of prediction, they were about 60% accurate in terms of being able to predict who's going to develop uh, Alzheimer's disease in the next three to four years. So, you know, four out of ten patients, they were getting the answer wrong. So now you add onto that, add a, an MRI test or a uh, test of the spinal fluid, and it turns out that those tests, uh, that is either one of those tests increased the accuracy by about 10%. So now you're talking about 70% accuracy. Now, instead of adding MRI and CSF proteins, add PET to office test, that is FDG PET. Turns out that increased the predictive accuracy about 20%, so we were about 80% accurate with, with office test, cognitive testing plus PET. Then if you combine all of them together, that is the office tests or cognitive pencil and paper test plus the biomarkers, there was about a 90% accuracy in terms of prediction um, of development of Alzheimer's disease. So, you know, so that was really the bottom line is that all, of, all three of these biomarkers, FDG-PET, MRI, and CSF proteins, all contributed unique information over and above the simple pencil and paper and maybe blood test that a clinician would have available. But we also do one other thing. We also did uh, a technique called cross-validation. 
So, you know, as you know, uh, as editor of radiology, a problem with a lot of tests uh, of accuracy is that they overestimate uh, accuracy in, in diagnostic tools. So, you know, and the reason is to truly assess accuracy, you really have to take your test, your assessment, and apply that model to a different population. So we use this technique called cross-validation to try to imitate that uh, without using a totally new sample to get more, more um, realistic assessments of accuracy. And what we found was that MRI and spinal fluid tests, they added you know, very little over and above the, the pencil, paper, and blood tests uh, of the uh, office practitioner. PET added you know, maybe um, 10 to 15% extra, and then um, if you looked at everything together, there wasn't much more accuracy over uh, PET alone. So PET accounted for most of that increased accuracy uh, of the modalities when we use this cross-validation technique. So how does this inform our clinical practice? Should we simply be doing PET when advanced imaging is requested? Uh, or uh, would you uh, suggest combining FDG, PET, and MRI? How does this help the practicing radiologist? Right. So, you know, so what I would say, you know, in terms of practice, we should definitely continue doing MRI, uh, you know, for this, particularly for the evaluation of patients with dementia. You know, CT and MRI are the mainstay for, you know, for ruling out other, other potentially treatable causes of dementia, you know, like the normal pressure hydrocephalus, strokes, the patient has multi-infarct dementia or vascular dementia, you want to rule out a mass, uh, you know, those are things that uh, clinicians don't want to miss, so they're still going to order uh, a regular MRI or CT for that. You know, and that's in a patient with dementia, who meets criteria for dementia. Now, in MCI patients, clinicians don't all order MRIs as much, you know, less for sort of ruling out these rare treatable causes. But still, you know, if a clinician um, is inclined to order that to rule out these uh, cases, in other words, patient has some atypical symptoms, they should definitely still get an MRI. Now, with respect to volumetrics or um, FDG PET in the workup, so FDG PET, I would say, you know, again, in dementia, FDG PET, that's been approved by the FDA to differentiate between Alzheimer's and frontotemporal dementia. So patients who kind of have a funny presentation should probably get FDG PET as well. Now, in this study, so let's talk about this study now. So what are the findings in this study add? Well, you know, we found that FDG PET had more predictive information than, than volumetric MRI or CSF proteins at the MCI stage, so at the early stage of dementia. And, and in this study, so to answer this question, you know, what had more information, we used this data mining technique, it's called independent components analysis, and basically we wanted to look for information in the images that wasn't available to the naked eye. So if you ask now, you know, if this, um, should we modify our practice based on this study? Well, I can say that in principle, there's more information available in, in the images, you know, particularly in PET images. But until we have 
you know, a better way to, to make this information available to a practitioner in their everyday practice, we, sh- we shouldn't be modifying our practice at this time. It seems as though the imaging is a moving target where you have new PET tracers or you have new MRI techniques. When do you think those even further advanced imaging techniques will add value to what you've done in this study? Yeah. You know, as you know, you mentioned uh, amyloid PET, which was recently approved by the FDA um, back in, in April of last year. For its, and it's really approved for the use in detecting Alzheimer's pathology uh, in patients with cognitive decline. So, you know, we looked at CSF in this, we looked at amyloid in the CSF in this study, but as you said, now there's amyloid PET. This is a moving target. So I think future studies need to incor- should incorporate amyloid PET to, re- to evaluate its role in the context of these other biomarkers. In fact, you mentioned uh, that my uh, colleague, Morali Doraswamy, who's also a co-author on this article, he recently published a paper in the journal Neurology that looked at the predictive power of, of amyloid PET in MCI for predicting conversion to Alzheimer's disease and found that patients who are positive on amyloid imaging are at greater risk uh, for cognitive decline. So it's definitely, uh, it is definitely a moving target, I, I agree. And in terms of uh, the practical applications of your findings, this kind of assumes that there's some therapy we might offer the patients. How far away is that? Yeah, so um, that's a really good question. You know, um, there are uh, four currently FDA-approved therapies for Alzheimer's disease. Um, these are so-called cognitive-enhancing drugs, the cholinesterase inhibitors, and there's uh, one glutamate receptor antagonist. So, so there are drugs, but these are drugs that um, they enhance cognition. They, they basically take the, uh, the brain cells that you have left and they kind of jumpstart them. But they do not, they're not what we call disease-modifying therapies. That is, they don't get at the underlying cause, at least the cause of what we think might be the cause of Alzheimer's disease. So you give these therapies for six to 18 months, patients do a little bit better. They have a little bit of, a little bump in cognition, but you know, really after 18 months, patients begin to decline, they decline again. If you take them off the drugs, they wind up, they may even decline faster and they wind up where they might have been had they never been on the drugs at all. So, so again, there's a search now, you know, there's an urgent search for disease-modifying therapies. And recent phase three trials have failed. The couple of drugs, uh, so-called, uh, these drugs that prevent their, their antibodies to amyloid, two of those phase three trials um, recently failed. One was bapinuzumab, uh, the other solanuzumab. Solanuzumab showed there was um, like a, so basically on the primary outcome measure in the study, you know, which was cognition, it failed. It did not show um, a significant slowing effect on Alzheimer's disease. Um, they looked at a subset of patients and, you know, there was a, in a sub-analysis, they were able to find a little signal there. But, you know, overall, we have not had a significant um, breakthrough 
than in terms of disease modification. You know, so yeah, so where does that leave us in terms of diagnosis? Well, you know, you could say that, well, you know, this stuff, it, this doesn't matter. Diagnosis has, you know, really doesn't make a difference in the context of a lack of therapy. I don't know, is that what you're saying, Dave? <laughs> I, I, I guess I'm somewhat implying that. What about yeah. the future of radiology? PET-MR is on the horizon. Um, is that a tool that would have enhanced your study, or, or do you envision getting simultaneous PET-MR imaging as a way to advance Alzheimer's research? You know, right now, I, I, think, I think both PET and MRI independently can offer some in, you know, offer information. They've improved our understanding of Alzheimer's disease immensely. But uh, right now, I think, you know, the synergy of PET and MRI, we haven't really taken advantage of that. And I think, you know, for the immediate future, I mean, aside from the convenience of being able to get both exams on a patient in the same session, which is not to be minimized, um, I, I would say there aren't I don't see a synergistic role uh, for PET and MRI right now. You know, you could ask, well, MRI helps you localize the, uh, the activation on PET a little bit better. But I mean, do, do you really need that? You know, what we're looking for right now, the way particularly amyloid PET is used and FDG PET are used, you're looking for global patterns that you could already see uh, in, a, in a nuclear scan. So I don't see, you know, the localization power of uh, PET MRI, I don't see that sort of as an immediate application, but the advantage I do see is that you can get both modalities on a patient in a single session, which I think, you know, there are definitely advantages uh, and convenience for these patients. Well, uh, Jeff, I, I want to thank you greatly for joining us today. Is there anything else that we haven't covered that you want to mention before we sign off? Yeah, um, well, Dave, um, yeah, I mean, just to uh, follow up on our discussion of, I guess, in the absence of a diagnostic, in the absence of a therapy, you know, is it worth it to, to work on diagnostic modalities? And I would say the answer is definitely yes, um, because suppose, let's say, you know, in another month we get, there's a breakthrough and there's a particular drug which happens to be a good disease-modifying therapy in Alzheimer's disease, well then, you know, there's going to be um, an immediate demand or, or a immediate call for ways to identify patients who are candidates uh, for this drug. So, so, there's, so I think, you know, early diagnosis and the development of therapeutics, they go hand in hand. And, and one can help the other. I think, you know, developing therapies, you know, is, uh, that's sort of the end. Of, that's the goal of, of all of this. Um, but I think those therapies are going to be most effective early on at the earliest stages of the disease. Uh, so I think that's where the diagnostic modality and therapy uh, need to go hand in hand. In addition, diagnostic modalities could help us determine you know, whether or not we, the therapy's hitting its target. So it could, so diagnostics could help in phase two trials, early phase, phase two trials. They could also help in phase three trials in selecting patients who have a particular biomarker profile uh, for therapy. You know, the, the definition 
of Alzheimer's disease was changed for the first time in 27 years, just back in, in, uh, in 2012. So there are these new designations which are based on biomarkers, including a category called preclinical Alzheimer's disease. These are patients who have no symptoms at all, but who have biomarker evidence of disease. And this is now sort of considered a new target population for clinical trials. So prevention is, uh, is all the talk now. Well, you sold me. Clear <laughs> 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 reasons to continue doing what you're doing, Jeff. We, uh, we greatly appreciate your support of our journal, and we look forward to, uh, to more submissions from your outstanding group. Great. Thank you so much, Dave. I appreciate it. Sure.